0: You follow along as I read Daniel chapter 8 this morning. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision and it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. Now that phrase, beautiful land, refers to Israel. It grew up to the host of heaven, and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face, but he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, while he was talking with me... I sank into a deep sleep and my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. He said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The ram, which you saw with the two horns, represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now, that would be the first king of Greece. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told, is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this incredible passage of Scripture and give us understanding of it as we work our way through it. I'll tell you something interesting that happened this week to me. I, as you know, as you've been informed, am planning to go out west, and I have this year a new GPS system that I've been trying to learn that tracks you in the mountains. I have carefully read at least two different times the manual of this thing and cannot make heads or tails of it. So I decided to call the company and talk with a product engineer and tell him I want you to march me through the process of how this works. And I've got a piece of paper and pen and I'll write it down. So he took me through the process, and I wrote down one, two, three, went through it. I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll go home tonight. I'm going to try it. If I have questions, I'm going to call you back, and then you can answer He said, okay. So I went home, and what he told me to do didn't work. So I came back the next day, and I called him, and I said to him, now something is wrong with what you told me to do. And I said, I'm going to march through these steps again. Finally, the guy says to me, you know, maybe you shouldn't go into the mountains. <laughs> You know, some people when they come to biblical prophecy think like that, maybe we shouldn't go in there. It's just a little bit complicated, it's too complex, we're going to get lost and amazed. But the fact of the matter is, God does not want his people ignorant about the future, he obviously wants us to know the future, and he's very specific about what he is going to have take place in the future. And if ever there's a book that demonstrates that, it's this book of Daniel. Now, we're going to begin a study on October 30th on Sunday night at 6 o'clock on the book of Revelation. This book is going to coincide nicely with this book of Daniel. So if you've ever wanted to go through the book of Revelation, we're going to begin that study on Sunday night, October 30th. So I hope you'll be here. But Daniel receives in this text a tremendous glimpse of the future, and he records it for us. And what God does here is he gives Daniel a prophetic vision that reveals the specific rise and fall of major Gentile powers, including that individual known as the Antichrist. Now, God does not just have chapter 8 show up in the book of Daniel for the fun of it. There's a purpose behind this. The purpose was this. He wanted Israel to understand, I'm going to permit calamity to hit you. I'm going to permit you to be dominated by Gentile powers. I'm going to allow some negative things to happen to you. But I want you to understand, eventually, that will all come to an end. You will be in and out of your land. You'll be dominated by different powers. And eventually, I'll bring it all to my conclusion. And one day, you'll have a kingdom, and you'll be in it forever. Now, in this particular text of Scripture, there are six main facts brought out that I want to show you. Fact number one, Daniel gives the time of the vision. Notice verse one. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me. Now, the vision, obviously, that he's getting in chapter 8 occurred in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, which had been 551 B.C. We may recall that the first vision he got, if you just back up to chapter 7, verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, that's the first year of Belshazzar, he got the previous vision, which was 553 B.C., So what this means now is that two years have transpired between the first vision and this vision. In Daniel's first vision, he saw four world powers who would dominate Israel, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. In this vision, he's going to receive more information, particularly concerning the second and third powers, Medo-Persia and Greece. And then he'll get some more insight into that one odd world leader which keeps Catching his attention all the way through this book of Daniel. Now, God is going to allow some very unusual things to happen to his people. And these are people who are his own, Israel. Many loved him. And he said, I want you to know that things are going to happen to you that you might not understand, but I'm in control. And the other thing I want you to see from verse 1 is you've got a two-year gap of time between the previous vision and this vision. And what do you find Daniel doing in that two-year gap of time? Every day of his life was not spent getting these special messages from God. What we find Daniel doing is being faithful to the Lord and carefully studying the Scriptures. Which brings us to the second fact. Daniel gives the place of the vision. Verse 2, I looked in the vision... And it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Susa. Now, more than likely, when Daniel got this vision, he was actually living in Babylon. But where he's transported here to see this vision is to Susa. And when he looked at his vision, he found himself beside the Ulai Canal. This canal is 900 feet wide. It bridges two rivers together, and there was a fortress there that really introduced you to Susa. It was located very near Susa, which was 200 miles east of Babylon, 120 miles north of the Persian Gulf, if you want to have some perspective where Susa was located. Now, at the time that Daniel writes Daniel 8:2, this prophecy of Scripture, Susa was not a political powerhouse, that it would become under the Persian Empire. Daniel is projected to a city. He's looking at a city that would become the home of Esther and Mordecai and Nehemiah, and he sees it in all of its grandeur. Now, ladies and gentlemen, he would have had no way of knowing this, that this is going to be the city that will become the capital of the Persian Empire other than by revelation of God. When I read chapter 8, verse 2, it reminds me of Micah. Micah, 700 years before Jesus Christ is born, picks one city out of all the cities he could have selected to say, here's the city where the Messiah will be born. It'll be Bethlehem. Now you would have thought, if you're talking about the king of the Jews, you'd have selected Jerusalem. But he picks Bethlehem. And we know, according to Luke's account, that's exactly where Jesus Christ was born. How do they know this? Because God says, I'm controlling this, and I'm going to allow Susa to become the dominant power and the capital city of the power that will dominate the Israelis. That brings us to the third fact. Daniel gives details of the vision in verses 3 to 13. Now, in verses 3 to 13 we get a look at 11 specific sites that Daniel saw. Site number one, Daniel saw a ram with two horns in front of the canal. We read that in verse 3, Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now, if there's ever such a thing as a normal part to the vision, I guess we would say this is it, because we know, according to our previous studies, that the two horns represent two political powers, so this was not unusual. Obviously, by virtue of the fact that the location is mentioned, it's in Susa and the Ulai Canal, that tells us that this is going to happen, the rise of these two powers, and this city, Susa, will become a key place of power. And of course, it would become a key place of power. This would become the capital city of the Persian Empire. Now, the second sight that Daniel saw is he saw two horns, which were long, but the longer one came up at last. Now, that was unusual. You have two powers that are coming up at the same time. One of the horns grew larger and apparently started dominating the other horn, even though initially they rise at the same time. The third sight that Daniel saw was an unstoppable ram moving west, north, and south. Verse 4, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. Now this is an amazing prophecy. I mean, this is better than any GPS data on earth. You get a global tracking here of exactly where this power was going to move. This is the area that he was going to take over and how he was going to take it over. Now, the foresight Daniel saw is he saw a male goat come out of the West that conquered the world with so much speed that his feet didn't hit the ground. He had a very unusual horn between his eyes. Look at verse 5. While I was observing, behold, A male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Now, as Daniel is thinking about this, here's Susa. Here are these two powers that are going to be in control. Susa is obviously going to be a key city. All of a sudden, he sees a male goat that comes up with great speed to challenge those powers, those two powers. And there was something unusual about this power that came up, and that is there was an unusual leader. There was someone that was letting this happen in rapid rate, leading the charge in a quick way. Now, the fifth sight Daniel saw is he saw a male goat rush wrathfully at the ram with two horns. Notice verse 6. He came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had been standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. Now, again, it is emphasized that this male goat goes at this ram, and he does so with incredible speed. According to verse 5, his feet do not touch the ground. According to verse 6, he comes on him with a rush. The whole emphasis of Hebrew here is that this is happening in rapid fashion. Now, the sixth sight that Daniel saw is he saw a male goat smash shatter and destroy the ram with two horns. Notice verse 7. I saw him come beside the ram. He was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. With absolutely no help from anybody. He sees this one he-goat demolish the ram with two horns. He does it with rapid speed. Both horns, both powers are shattered by this one power in a quick way. Now, the seventh sight that Daniel saw in the vision is he saw the male goat glorify himself, but be quickly broken and replaced by four other horns. Verse 8, then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Now, there's shocking news given here. The shocking news is this. Here's this horn moving with rapid speed. He takes over these other two powers and in the height of his power and in the middle of things, he's broken off and he's replaced by these four other horns, which brings us to the eighth sight. Daniel saw another horn come out of the four who was specifically focused on Israel. Verse 9, out of one of them, that is out of one of those four, came forth a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south toward the east and toward the beautiful land this other horn arises out of these four and this one is going to now specifically go at the beautiful land and take his focus on Israel aim specifically at her now the ninth sight that Daniel saw as he saw this other horn become a terrible enemy of God of Israel and of the temple He says in verses 10 to 11, it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. It removed the regular sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. The thing that stands out about this horn that came out of the other four is that he becomes so arrogant that he absolutely magnifies himself to a level of God, and he goes on a rampage against Israel and against the temple. He demolishes worship in the temple. The tenth sight that Daniel saw is that this horn was given permission to prosper and dominate Israel because of Israel's transgression. Verse 12 says, And on account of transgression, the host, that's referring to God's people Israel, will be given over to the horn, along with a regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Now, Daniel is clear to see that this horn is being permitted to do terrible things to Israel because of her transgression, and he is actually, this political power is permitted to dominate Israel because of the transgressions of Israel, and in fact, he actually wipes out normal worship and he wipes out commitment to the word of God. The eleventh thing that Daniel sees is he sees that the domination would continue 2300 evenings and mornings and then the temple would be restored. Verses 13 and 14 tell us, I heard a holy one speaking, another holy one. How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is specific stuff. Daniel is seeing specific things. These are specific numbers given by God to Daniel. This is a prediction that something is going to happen to temple worship. Something is going to happen. A guy's going to rise out of those four splits of power, and he's going to turn against Israel. He's going to go up against her and stop her worship, and it's going to affect worship for 2,300 days. Now, that's the prediction. You can't get more specific than that. And what this tells us, ladies and gentlemen, is the days and evenings are controlled by God. He controls it right down to the minute of What's going on pertaining to Israel? And he controls it right down to the minute of what's going on in your world. I want us to understand something about God that certainly comes out of the book of Daniel. Every breath we take is a breath that's granted to us from God. Every day we live is a day that's been given to us by the Lord. The great focus of one who's wise will be, I want to be right with God who controls all of time, every day, every moment of my life. Now, that brings us to the fourth fact. Daniel desires to know the interpretation of what he just saw. Verses 15 to 19. Now, I love this. And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it. And behold, one standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of the man between the banks of Ulai. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. Now, I want you to notice what Daniel does. He wants to know things. He wants to know what he's seen. And he asked God to give him insight. He asked God, give me an understanding so I can know what I just saw. Ladies and gentlemen, this is one of the big problems of students of the Bible. They leave out prayer. You cannot approach the Bible like you do any textbook. If you're going to have God allow you to understand wonderful things and behold wonderful things, one of the key criteria for that is prayer. I believe when you get ready to come to church, you should be asking the Lord, and I hope you are, asking the Lord to speak to you through his word. You should be coming into a church with a heart that's prepared. We've spent time saying, Lord, I want to know your word. I want to understand more things about you. So when I go to church today and feed on your word, allow me to see things. Allow me to understand things. That is a very smart and wise thing to do. Daniel was never content with just surface level stuff. Just because this happened to be a tough vision, he doesn't say, well, let's just forget about it. It'll all turn out the way God wants it to turn out. His view is, I want to know it, and I want to know it specifically, and he asked God to do it. And Daniel was given an answer to his request. In fact, Gabriel was ordered to give Daniel an understanding of what he saw. John Calvin said there's really only one who could have ordered Gabriel to do this. It was the Son of God the second member of the Trinity that said to Gabriel, go show Daniel, tell Daniel what it is that he just saw. Now, the thing I want you to notice before we actually go on a little further and we'll get into what Gabriel told Daniel is that this has to do with the time of the end. That's stressed there in verse 17. At the end of the verse, it pertains to the time of the end. Again, in verse 19, it pertains to the appointed time of the end. So what Gabriel is going to reveal to Daniel is prophecy that's going to pertain to Israel all the way to the end when finally she is able to be in her kingdom and receive all the blessings that have been promised to her by God. Now, Gabriel is a name that means the mighty one, and that's certainly what he is. He is what his name implies. It is never said of Gabriel that he's an archangel, although it's suspected that he is. Michael is called an archangel, but Gabriel is not necessarily specifically said to be one. Gabriel shows up four times in the Bible, and always he shows up in the context of revealing divine prophetic revelation and information. Gabriel seems to be the angel who's responsible to open up insight when it comes to prophetic truth. For example, he appears to Daniel here to give him an interpretation of the vision that he received. He appears to Daniel a little bit later on in the book over in chapter 9, when he'll give him an understanding of Jeremiah's 70-year prophecy. He appears to Zacharias in Luke chapter 1. He informs Zacharias that his wife Elizabeth is going to give birth to John, who will be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And then his final appearance is he appears to Mary in the greatest of all prophetic revelations, when he tells her that she will give birth as a virgin to the Savior and the King. Now the time gap between what is revealed here from Daniel to Mary is about 450 years. So time when it comes to angelic existence means nothing. I mean, Gabriel can give a, a interpretation, an interpretation and understanding of prophecy to Daniel some 450 years before he shows up to give one to Mary. But ladies and gentlemen, there is a principle that I want you to see and I believe with all of my heart. And that is this principle, the ability to understand the word of God. The ability to understand the things of God that pertain even to prophecy is a grant from the Lord. And if you right now are in a time of your life where the word of God is coming to life for you and things are stirring in your soul and you're seeing things in scripture that you've never seen before, don't take that lightly. That is God working in you. There are heavenly powers at work that allow people to come to an understanding of the word of God. And those powers do not work everywhere. And they do not work in all places at all times. You thank the Lord that right now in the history of your life, things are lighting up to you from the word of God. Now, when Gabriel went to where Daniel was to give him an interpretation, I want you to notice what it was that Daniel did. He says, the text tells us that he fell down on his face Notice carefully, so he came near to where I was standing, verse 17, I was frightened and fell on my face. Now let's remind ourselves who this is. This is Daniel, the most godly man alive. No one on earth had a better relationship with God as Daniel did. Nobody on earth had a better understanding of the word of God in the level of Daniel. In fact, this chapter Basically ends saying that in verse 27 when Daniel says there was nobody that could explain what I didn't know. I mean, I knew prophecy at a level that nobody else on earth knew it. But I want you to notice, ladies and gentlemen, the reverence Daniel had for God. Whenever you truly have the presence of God in some place, actually and factually, there will be a reverence for God. God's real presence is never found in a light, fluffy atmosphere. It's found with people who are bowed before him in reverent worship. This giddy, emotional, sensational, loud, blaring, raucous stuff that's going on in churches, I promise you, is not true worship, and it is not acceptable to God. The fact of the matter is, when people worship God, when the presence of God is truly in a place, you can see a Daniel type of reverence. They're bowed before the Lord. One of the most thrilling things that has happened to me personally in my pastoral ministry happened last Sunday night. We had four or five families visit our church last Sunday night at our Sunday night service. And one of the men, as I was standing out there, walked up to me and said, Do you know what the word on the street of Kalamazoo is about this church? I said, No, what is it? He said, Out on the street, they're saying, if you want to worship God in the word and with hymns, you go to Texas Corners Bible. Now, I'll tell you, that made my soul sore. I thought, wow, what a reputation. That's thrilling. But as thrilling as it is, it's a true indicator that the presence of God is powerfully at work. Because that's what's happening to Daniel. He's down before God in a worshipful spirit. Verse 18 says, Gabriel, while he was talking to Daniel, went to him, he made him stand and informed Daniel, I'm going to reveal things. You're going to see things right now. You never dreamed about the end. Which brings us to the fifth fact. Daniel is given an interpretation of the vision, verses 20 to 26. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to see is absolutely amazing. Six revelatory interpretations given that were given to Daniel prior to these events unfolding, Daniel would live to see a couple of them, but most of them he didn't live to see, and one of them we're still waiting to see. First of all, interpretation number one, the ram with two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. They're named for you in verse 20. The ram which you saw with two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Now, ladies and gentlemen, a couple hundred years before this, God, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, actually named the king of Persia that he would use. I want you to quickly go back to Isaiah 44. You've got to see this. You have to see this. This is amazing. You're going back in time now, a couple hundred years before these events would happen. And I want you to go to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 44. Now notice what is said in Isaiah 44 in verse 28. You talk about specific prophecy. Isaiah 44, 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, he's naming the guy here, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire and he declares of Jerusalem she will be built and of the temple your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus his anointed, whom I've taken by my right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Cyrus isn't even born yet. And it is predicted by Isaiah This one will be named Cyrus, he's going to come into existence, he's going to be a tremendous political leader who actually is a servant of the Lord. He wasn't one who necessarily loved God with all of his heart, mind, and soul, but he was one that God said, I'm using to accomplish my purposes. Now, media was the first major power to arise against Babylon under Persia. However, Cyrus soon gained control. Media and Persia came up about the same time, and Cyrus was the one who gained the larger of the two horns and went on to conquer the west, the north, and the south. In fact, it's said of Cyrus and his son Cambusus II, they were invincible and they established the largest empire the world had seen to that day. That's what Daniel saw. The second interpretation is the goat represents the kingdom of Greece. Notice verse 21. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. This power came up against Medo-Persia with lightning speed. Without any help from multiple nations, without any help from any other power except by sovereign edict of God, Greece brought down the Medo-Persian world. Which brings us to the third interpretation. The large horn between the first eyes is the first king of Greece. Notice verse 21. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The first king of Greece was Alexander the Great. In 334 BC, he came specifically from the west, which is clearly predicted back in chapter 8 and verse 5. This male goat was coming from the west. That's where he came from. He crossed the Hellespont and defeated the Persian army under the rule of Darius III. He freed the Grecian cities of Asia Minor from the Persians, and he confronted Darius himself at the Cilician gates of Syria. He won a decisive victory near Antioch of Syria in 333 BC. Darius saw the power of Alexander the Great. He wanted to negotiate a peace treaty, but Alexander wouldn't do it. After he conquered that, he went south into Egypt. He took Tyre and Gaza. And in 331 BC, he had totally stamped out the power of the Medes and the Persians. He wasn't content with that. He had dominated that part of the world. He said, let's go east. So he took his military campaign, and he went east, and he took the key cities of Persia, such as Susa and Persepolis. He went all the way to India. And in June of 323 BC, he returned to Babylon, and at age 33, he died in the peak of his power. Just exactly what was predicted in the eighth verse. He'll be mighty, and in the middle of being mighty, he will be broken. He died a drunken, depressed man. But Alexander the Great had completely destroyed Persia as a world power faster than any who've ever done it in history before. It was remarkable what Alexander did. And this is more than just a military victory. This is more than just a man who has a military genius bent to him. This is God at work. It was Alexander who actually began to bring the East and the West together. And he did one thing, ladies and gentlemen, that stands the test of time that is even today very important. He brought the Greek language to the people that God would inspire his scriptures in, Koine Greek. Alexander so influenced the world that today in most theological institutions you still study the language that Alexander brought to the world, the Koine Greek language. Daniel saw it. The fourth interpretation is the four horns represent the four kingdoms that will replace a large broken horn. Verse 22, the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. When Alexander died, that quick sudden death, The power of Greece was turned over to his four main generals. He did not have any child to turn the power over to. So it was divided over to four generals. Cassander ruled over Macedonia and Greece. Lusimachus ruled over Thrace and most of Asia Minor. Seleucus ruled over Syria and the vast territory of the East. And Ptolemy ruled over Egypt and the Promised Land. Now it was specifically predicted in chapter 8 and verse 9 that out of one of these four would arise one who would be vicious against Israel. It was predicted in verse 9 that one would arise out of these four powers who would particularly set his sights on demolishing Israel. Well, the eighth person to arise in the family of Seleucus out of Syria was a man whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, Seleucus reigned in 301 B.C., And Antiochus officially began to reign in 175 to 164 B.C., although Antiochus started to move and started political maneuverings and military maneuverings back in the early 170 B.C. Antiochus' Epiphanes came to power in the time period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he was a hateful man, and he specifically targeted his hatred toward the Jews. He demanded that Greek culture and religion be imposed upon Israel. He made it unlawful for Jewish people to read the Torah, the law, or to observe the Sabbath, or to practice circumcision. He would not allow the Jewish people to exercise those dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. And if anybody disobeyed him, he killed them. In one attack in Jerusalem, he massacred more than 40,000 Jews. He systematically looted the temple. He was a diabolical man and demanded that sacrifices there be offered and that sacrifices cease. And then... He did something abominable. He put an idol in the temple, and according to Josephus, he offered a pig on the altar. Well, how long did his power last? Well, Antiochus died in 164 BC in a battle of media, and if we backtrack and discover, we'll discover something amazing. Judas Maccabeus restored worship to the temple on December twenty five. 165 B.C. Antiochus Epiphanes removed the high priest in Jerusalem in 171 B.C. His name was Onias. He ultimately had him murdered and he promoted a string of pseudo-priests to the responsibility of the priesthood out of Jerusalem. If we backtrack the date that Antiochus first put that false priest in office, even before he had come to office, it turns out the date was September 6, 171 B.C. If you track that to December 25, 165 B.C., which is the day that worship was finally restored in the Temple of Jerusalem, it is 2,300 days, which is exactly what was stated in Daniel. 2,300 days there would be this temple that would be controlled by one who was evil. Now you think about this. Daniel is seeing this vision in 553 BC. And at the time that he's seeing this vision, there is not even a threat of a Babylonian downfall. Daniel is looking into the future. He's seeing political things that were going to happen with precision. And the things that he's seeing are years away, in some cases hundreds of years. But everything that Daniel was seeing did come to fruition just exactly as he saw it. Which brings us to the fifth interpretation. There will arise another ruler who will be very, very unusual. Verses 23 to 25. Now in verse 17... Daniel says, you're going to see things that will take you to the time of the end. And the time of the end refers to the moment when Christ will come a second time, when the Ancient of Days will finally establish his kingdom on earth and reign in total righteousness on earth. And Daniel saw there's another individual who will arise who has similar characteristics to that of Antiochus Epiphanes, but he has other qualities as well. He's a world leader that caught Daniel's attention. He kept seeing this guy show up throughout the book of Daniel. And he sees 11 traits In this particular vision about this man. First of all, he would be insolent. What that means is he would be a fierce person. He would be one who would be a warrior. He would love fighting. He would love war. The fact of the matter is, he would be one who was after war and conquering the promised land. Secondly, he would be skilled in intrigue. And what those words mean in Hebrew, he can untwist things that are twisted. I understand that to be saying that this man will have a brilliant mind capable of solving some of the most brilliant, twisted problems in the world. He will be an individual probably who could initially pretend to solve the Middle East crisis. He's going to be a man skilled in intrigue, capable of solving difficult problems. The third trait is he will have an unusual power that is not his own. Verse 24 tells us his power will be mighty, but it's not his own power. He is controlled by Satan. It's Satan who's giving him the power to think and do the things that he thinks and the things that he does. The fourth trait is he will be unusually destructive. You'll notice verse 24 he will destroy to an extraordinary degree. He's going to go on a destructive rampage that will take in the whole world. The fifth trait that you notice, he will be very prosperous in all he does. And he will prosper and perform his will. He will appear to be in control of the world. Whatever he does, he'll appear to succeed. No Nobody can stop him. The sixth trait is he'll destroy God's people. Verse 24 says he will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. In fact, it was Jesus who said, if the days weren't shortened when this man is on the scene, there would be no flesh saved. None of God's people would even survive this. The seventh trait is he'll be a skilled liar who's able to deceive the whole world. Notice verse 25. And through his shrewdness, He will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will convince the world that he's after peace and safety. He will convince the world that he's after their welfare, but that is not his real ambition at all. The eighth trait is he'll elevate himself in his own heart. You'll notice verse 25, he'll magnify himself in his heart. People will not initially see. What's going on inside this individual? But they eventually will because one day he's going to set himself in the temple. Not an idol, not a pig. He'll set himself in the temple and demand that people worship him. The ninth trait is he will destroy many who think they are secure. You'll notice verse 25 says that. He will destroy many while they are at ease. Whoever he negotiated peace with will not be in a peaceful relationship with him. And we know from Scripture that Israel will initially think that she has a friend in this person who surfaces. She will initially think that she's going to live at peace and safely in her land. This person will turn out to be her worst nightmare. The tenth trait is he will oppose the prince of princes. Notice verse 25, he will even oppose the prince of princes. And the eleventh trait is he will be destroyed, but not by any human means. The end of verse 25 says... He will be broken without human agency. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes died by human agency. In the aftermath of one of his defeats, he suffered a lot of physical infirmity and he just drifted off into eternity. But the one described here is not going to die by any human means. He will not be stopped by any human individual. It will not be anything human. It will be Jesus Christ who stops him. And Jesus Christ will personally stop him and cast him into the lake of fire. Now, the sixth interpretation is the interpretation of the evening and morning vision is true. Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true. Ladies and gentlemen, God says everything I've just showed you is absolutely factual and futuristic. And I am convinced that the stage is being set right now for the surfacing of this man who is none other than the Antichrist. There are threats of wars, there's a threat of economy. As we said last time, those are two things that always are ripe for surfacing a world leader. And if somebody can surface who can pretend to bring peace to the Middle East, you better believe the world's going to stand in awe of that individual. And when Gabriel says, keep the vision secret, he's basically saying, you protect this vision. You carefully guard this vision. You carefully watch over it and care for this vision. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. This is the way it's going to go down. You keep this until the time of the end. And when Daniel saw this, you'll notice the sixth fact. He was left completely physically and emotionally drained. Verse 27 says, I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. There was none to whom Daniel could look to even talk to about this. My goodness, he's seen the future revealed to him by Gabriel. Nobody was in his league. Nobody knew prophecy at that level. I like what Dr. Donald Campbell said. Daniel took these prophecies very seriously, and so should we. Now, we are living at a time when this world is ripe for a world leader to surface who will have a solution to an energy crisis. We're living at a time when this world is ripe for a world leader who can surface, who can solve a job crisis. We're living at a time when the world is ripe who can solve war crisis and bring peace to the Middle East. The time is ripe for the surfacing of this man of sin. Dr. H.A. Ironside was preaching one night a prophetic message on this text. And in that church, there came a known godless man who walked into the service and walked right up near the front and sat down. And after the service, the man went to Dr. Ironside and arrogantly said, I'm glad you agree with me. Ironside said, so you believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ then? And the man said, oh yes. Ironside said, well then what difference does it make to your life? Now you see, we're studying prophecy here. This is a book of Daniel that teaches us that one day Jesus Christ will return. It's factual. It's futuristic. It's real. It's as real as you and I are here. These prophecies that have been fulfilled have been fulfilled literally, just exactly like they went down. But what difference does that make to your life? What difference does it make to you right now? Listen, it has been proved in this book of Daniel that God fulfills prophecy very specifically, right down to the minutest detail. And the world right now is shaping up for the fulfillment of some of these prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is sovereignly right now at work in this world and he's setting the stage for the fulfillment of his future? Then I ask you Ironside's question. What difference does that make to your life?